The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. So welcome again, everyone. Special welcome. It's your first time here tonight. My name is Gabe, and uh, I'm the office manager here at Common Ground. Filling in for our guiding teacher, who usually leads Wednesday nights, Shelly Graff. Our associate director also leaves once a month, but usually it's Mark Lindbergh, our guiding teacher. But he's got the cold that's going around. Our bookkeeper has it too. I know if he didn't. I should have said that. Hope not. So. You might have noticed during the sit. Some desires arise in your mind. Maybe the desire to understand how to meditate. <laughs> or the desire to get rid of your thoughts. Or desires about your life. Things that you are pursuing in your life. Using the time to strategize plan or worry about something coming up that's difficult. So, the talk that I'm giving is about relating wisely to desire. And I think desire is a good definition for being alive, for being a living being, is having desires and acting on them. So, what's the problem? Might be a good question. Maybe during the set, again, as an example, different desires (laughs) arose. And maybe to greater or lesser degrees, there was some sense of a burden on the heart related to the desire, like something that I want that I don't have, or something that I don't want that I do have. So, how do we relate to all these desires? And I think that pragmatic assessment of the burden in the heart, that's that's what seems most relevant. So then the question is, how are we to be a human being with desires? Can't get can't get around that. And a lot of those desires we need to act on, or we will act on, we want to act on. So, maybe the problem, if there is a problem, which, I mean, I have a problem. I mean, I, I, my heart is burdened at times. That's what, you know. So, if our hearts aren't completely free, completely at peace, um, how are we relating to desires? And is there any suffering there? Is there any sense of a burden there? If there is, then that's interesting, and we can look at that. But I've been um, reflecting on this frame in terms of just seeing desires as nature, basically, and the relative freedom and lightness of that, as opposed to seeing all my desires as really personal, and either I, I feel completely driven by them, or I'm ashamed of them, I don't want them, pretend I don't have them, I don't have desires, I am at peace already, when really my heart is, has a lot of desires, a lot of longing. I think there's something about just acknowledging that I'm a bundle of desires, and if I look out at everyone that we're just bundles of desires, Something about that feels very um, 
trying to make it, you know, as opposed to other ways I could think about myself or think about you as someone got it together or I can tell you who I am in a coherent way. But in my own direct experience, it's just a series of desires. I want this, then I get that, or I don't want that, and it's over, and then I want something else. And often there's a sense of weight there, but not always. Sometimes there's desires, and I act on them, and it seems to lead to good things for myself and for others. I was reflecting on how much desire it takes to have a meditation center that has as many programs as we do. I work, like I said, as the office manager, and most of my job is just keeping... Um, keeping track and making sure that all the different um, programs that we offer have people to open and close the building and just all those pra- um, practical details. But everyone who's teaching, and me being here, I had the desire to teach. When Mark sent out the email at 10 this morning, I could have um, I could have said no. But there, And there were different desires. You know, we have multiple and sometimes conflicting desires. But I chose to follow the desire, the impulse of being here. <laughs> and everyone else who offers. So I think, I guess, part of my reason in talking about this is that sometimes in Buddhism, um, which this is a Buddhist center, um, desire can get a bad rap. And it's clear that when there isn't wisdom in the mind, that we can create a lot of trouble for ourselves around our desires. But I think just re- kind of reframing or even reclaiming that word desire, as in all the desire, like I was saying, that it takes to, even for the Buddha, to, to teach and all the people since then. So generosity is a desire and love and sharing and compassion is a desire. That's a quote I like from Saida Vajjaniya, a Burmese monk, that the Buddha didn't say we shouldn't speak, think, or act, but that we should speak, think, and act in ways that lead to happiness and not to suffering. And there's another discourse um, of the Buddha. Before he was the Buddha, he was a bodhisattva, which is the technical term for someone who aspires to be a Buddha. But when he was still unenlightened, um, just a normal person like us, and practicing, and it just occurred to him to divide his thoughts into two classes, one that lead towards suffering and one that seems to lead towards happiness. So it's interesting because uh, sometimes we can hear teachings, Buddhist teachings, about acceptance and um, everything's nature. You know, I already have been saying that. You know, everything's nature. You know, the, the wholesome motivations in the mind, the unwholesome motivations in the mind, pain, pleasure, it's all just nature expressing itself. But that doesn't mean that there isn't still skillful desires and unskillful desires. So this whole um, part of the Buddhist teachings, which we could but under the umbrella of karma, basically that actions, including actions of mind, have results. This is a big part of the Buddhist teachings. And, and this you know, the discriminating wisdom, oh, this seems to lead towards good things for myself and others. And this seems to lead towards suffering, or to confusion, or... So they're both desires, and 
They're both, we're going to have both of them, skillful and unskillful. And some lead to bright states of mind, generous, open, hearted, and some lead to contracted states of mind and body. So this is part of relating wisely to desire, is understanding that some desires lead one way, some desires lead another way. to ask the question of how the mind gets wiser about desires and which to follow. And in my experience, it's, it's, I was talking to a friend actually this afternoon about this. We were talking about, we were talking about this topic and, and she was bringing up what about the desires that you know on some level don't lead to your long-term well-being and well-being of others, but there's a lot of habit there. There's some confusion there, and you follow that. And for me, the interesting question isn't so much what's the right answer, or is there the right way, but what is the mind already doing? Because the mind is always already engaging with our desires in one way or the other. Some desires we we have the habit of acting on, maybe with more reflection or not, and others we have the habit of repressing or denying, maybe, or being ashamed of. So we're already we're already fully engaged in our lives with our desires, one or the other. Even non-engagement, you know, pretending I don't have a desire or, you know, not acting on the desire, you know, really holding myself back or straining, that's a way of engaging too. So we're, we're fully engaged with our life, our desires, our conditioning. And so the only really relevant question that changes the equation is, how much mindfulness is there? How much honest gathering of data, of linking of cause and effect, of seeing when the mind engages in this way, what's the result? When the mind engages in this way, what's the result? So mindfulness is really the game changer, and that's why it's the center of the Buddhist teachings and the center of our practice, even though it seems, you know, even just hearing the word mindfulness again, okay, <laughs> mindfulness, got it. But mindfulness is what illuminates the mind, what illuminates and allows the mind to be changed by the data it's receiving. That's why we can do the same thing for years, getting the same results, and we think, why am I still doing this? Why haven't I learned and beat ourselves up? But it's just because the mind hasn't gathered that data, hasn't really allowed that data to sink in. Oh, really being intimate with what it's like to walk all in that hole again, to see it all. And not, and, and I think blame in these sticky places is really extra, and in some ways is a way of protecting ourselves just from feeling how icky it can feel, that feeling of remorse when the mind has gone down the wrong path. But maybe it's not, any judgment is, is extra. Maybe the, the mind just hasn't seen hasn't felt. So maybe what's needed isn't judgment, but just a more honest and more understanding in, in the sense of the word, not just with the mind understanding, but understanding of course. Of course it's like this. Of course the mind does this.
The mind isn't yours, but you're responsible for it. That's another quote from Saito Pijaniya. The mind isn't yours, but you're responsible for it. And in my experience, this uh, understanding actually frees me up to be more responsible if I really assume that my thoughts are me and all of my beautiful and despicable thoughts and intentions are me, then I'm much less um, willing to just see them clearly because they reflect so personally on me. But if I practice seeing it as nature, then I'm more willing to just be with the facts. Oh, yeah, I might have some habits that really cause suffering myself and others. Wow, I really care about that. What can be done? And it also removes that fixed sense that we can have so often that, that habits are me, I'm this kind of person, as opposed to it's just nature, it's just a construction. And we can see that, even just intellectually, thinking through our lives and our histories. Oh yeah, it's not like this is any more me than the Grand Canyon is a self. It's just the natural result of causes and conditions. When this happens, then that happens. And seeing it as a construction, then we see it's not set in stone, and it can be changed. So then we're, yeah, we're more free, actually, to engage with our desires, to really get in there, get in the the mud with them, not take them at face value. Oh yeah, this, this is who I am. I just always do this. It's not great. Or this is who I am. Uh, this is a great part of me, and uh, want everyone to see. And uh, or this is a beautiful intention, but um, but it doesn't really fit with me. Like I'm a quiet person. I don't, you know. Whatever. So we're more free to just see more clearly unskillful desires as unskillful and without need for judgment. We just recognize, oh, that, that wouldn't lead in the right direction. And then when there are beautiful desires, then wisdom recognizes there's no need for restraint. You can really fully express that desire. So mindfulness gathers the data and wisdom makes changes. Wisdom sees, oh, yeah, gathers the data when there's enough data. Wisdom arises, you know, I actually don't need to do that. When I've been doing it, and there's a deep pattern, it doesn't actually make sense. And this isn't something that we do. It's just the natural result of the mind gathering data. And the mind naturally moves in the direction of less friction and less constriction, because that's what the mind wants. The mind wants to be at ease. And and free and unburdened. The mind wants pleasure on a very basic level. The mind orients towards pleasure and away from pain. I've been reflecting on that, um, that this path of practice, meditation, mindfulness, that leads towards greater and greater ease and freedom and connection. It's a path of pleasure, which I don't think we always hear or hear it framed like that. 
the path of happiness, deeper, deeper and deeper happinesses. And that, so it's just this mind with its same um, pull towards pleasure and away from pain, which is what we already have. We all want pleasure and away from pain, and we're, the mind is just with its, um, with however much wisdom it has now, is basically trying to fulfill those those desires or following desires, trying to get pleasure and away from pain. So it's that same motivation, but mindfulness just allows for more understanding and more nuance. Like, for example, <coughs> that a short-term pleasure with long-term negative repercussions, and with more mindfulness, that just becomes clear that that's not worth it. Or just more satisfying pleasures, like the pleasure of putting everything down that we do in meditation is satisfying in a way that just a simple good meal isn't as pleasant as the mind that's put everything down for a time that isn't caught up in its dramas or the mind or heart that's resting in an open-hearted appreciation or connection So, we don't have to abandon desires. It's natural that the mind has desires and that it moves towards pleasure and away from pain. We're just being a little more open-minded about what's possible in some ways. Areas that we haven't really explored. And we have the teachings as sort of an invitation. So, just uh, maybe to map out a little different kinds of pleasures that we can be interested in, because we're human beings interested in pleasure. So, we can be interested in sense pleasures. Especially, when we're sensitive, we notice that we don't want to indulge in sense pleasures that lead to harm, because it's just not worth it. You know, in our experience, that, that pain of remorse is much, has much longer and deeper consequences but if there are sense pleasures that don't cause harm, that that's a kind of pleasure, and there's no harm in that. And then there's the pleasures of that, in my experience, are more satisfying. Like to be a happy human being. If we were to just talk about that, and maybe we can in the Q and A session. What have we found really in our experience? leads to deeper senses of well-being, just on the ordinary level, wanting to be a happy human being. And the Buddha's suggestions were to practice generosity, to notice the crunching of a stingy heart, and to see that it actually feels good to give up my time, to give my resources in a way that supports others, but just that movement of the heart to show up, to make that sacrifice. Really, it's the letting go of self-centeredness in that moment. Well, I could be here for you in this moment. You seem to be needing a connection. Okay, I'll show up, even though there's, some, there's other things I could do. And when we notice that that feels good, <coughs> and the pleasures of So, and of integrity, not causing harm, and being able to look at our lives and say, yeah, for the most part, I'm not perfect, and that's not what we're going for, because that doesn't lead to happiness, looking at all our imperfections, but just appreciating this heart's commitment to integrity and not harming. So that, that's a deeper kind of happiness. Basically, you call this devil area of brightening the mind, brightening the heart. These beautiful qualities of the heart and mind that are available, we can cultivate. 
friendliness, working here, being around a lot of people, working with volunteers, I work in the front office, and uh, and basically learning like uh, it's hard to work with people if you don't have some kindness. I mean, it just just practically it makes things go a lot smoother. It makes my heart a lot happier than if I'm uh, resentful or um, just, you know, or stingy with my time every bit. But every moment, you know, where I answer the phone or have something to do, the mind can reframe it as an act of generosity or kindness. And that that's a choice. That's the very interesting, like, even just, again, like, it's almost like fake it till you make it. Like, I, because I know, I really know well the feeling of uh, disconnection or, you know, cutting someone out of my heart. So for me, a lot of it is just seeing that and just choosing to just show up regardless of that inclination, which is a well-oiled or well-cut groove in my mind. And, um, just show up, and so it's uh, with some openness, and uh, and it goes a long way. That could be our whole exploration for a whole practice, our whole life long. It's just, is it ever useful <clears throat> to not approach life with with kindness towards ourselves or others? Like, is that never a use? Is that ever not a useful attitude? And if we ever are justifying some cruelty or some meanness with ourselves or others or some cutting off or shutting down, just to be interested in that, that would be an interesting question. So we've got sense pleasures, happiness of brightening the mind, beautiful qualities, integrity, kindness, generosity, and then the happiness of inner peace, we could say, just putting down the low, even of those beautiful qualities, I feel like I need to be a kind person or a generous person, that could still be a more happy place than needing to be a curmudgeon or a grump, but I could still, there could still be some weight there. Oh yeah, I'm the person everyone likes because I'm nice and generous. So, just putting things down, not needing to be anyone in particular, putting down the world of good and bad, seclusion, the happiness of secluding the mind. And then when the mind is more secluded, just more kind of retreated, it's less pushed around by its likes and dislikes. So that's the happiness of this passion. Just the mind that's already pretty content. We probably all experience this. Just you know, often it's just when there's a lot of pleasantness around, and the mind's just chill. It's just content. And we might think of things that ordinarily in our lives would cause us some distress, but the mind just has some space around that. So these are more refined happinesses, the happiness of letting go of any attachment. In a moment, the mind is not attached to anything, and the freedom of that. But all of these are pleasant. So we don't have to think about them or imagine what they might be like. We just have to follow the mind's natural inclination towards pleasantness. And basically, we're constantly evaluating for ourselves. Um, there's the pleasure of sense of pleasure. And then when that um, is in conflict, say, with the pleasure of integrity, then our mind is doing that, that weighing the pros and cons. And with more mindfulness, I think, in my experience, the pleasure of integrity and the pain of remorse 
it just totally outweighs the pleasure of sense and pleasure. So I, the mind just naturally follows that deeper pleasure. And the pleasure of putting things down of seclusion is a really interesting one. It's so, it's so not part of our culture in the mainstream in this culture. The happiness of simplicity, happiness of putting things down, of not needing to be anyone. So, it's again, it's not something to believe, but just to see. And, it, and it's not the same as pushing away, or just hiding. But it's appreciating the beauty of a mind that isn't caught up in likes and dislikes. That doesn't need and doesn't push away. That's retreated from the complexity. It's just being with our experience in a simple way. So this is often where our formal meditation piece can be a really interesting exploration. And again, it shouldn't be a war. It's actually, with meditation I've been exploring just recently, it seems to be a much um, less combative approach that it's, my mind is just interested in pleasure. So I'm, in, I'm curious. I don't know for sure, but I'm curious that there might be a really deep pleasure that I'm not that familiar with, because mostly my mind has been chasing things and being afraid of things. But the pleasure of a mind that's not doing that, that's not, that's not caught up in that. And so I'm exploring, I'm seeing, is that actually a really healing pleasure, really healing break, and what actually supports that, because just wanting to get away from everything, that's just aversion, so it's, the mind has to actually be, um, have some sense of how nice it is to not be for or against, but to put itself somewhere neutral, or to put down all those inclinations, basically to think about our life and our stories. And it, yeah, this is a very interesting place. Anyways, experiment. See if that's true for you, that that's a pleasure, the joy of seclusion. And not, again, not kind of like a, like to see it as beautiful. That it's a beautiful thing when a, and then a very rare thing for a human being for moments to not be caught up in the drama of survival. Physical survival, psychological survival. And we have this to some degree even just absorbing into a television show. So notice that when, when our mind is looking for oblivion, that's what it's looking for. It's that happiness of not need to be someone. And so even if it's with a TV show, and that might have, you know, side effects, or there isn't as much mindfulness there, but we can really, wherever our mind is looking for this pleasure, we can tune into that and appreciate it and really show up there to see, well, this is what it's like. This is the pleasure of oblivion. And I really... Uh, had a good experience watching kind of a silly movie, um, Ocean's 8, a couple weeks ago. But I was just really noticing the break my mind was getting from my stories and dramas. So we can notice that. And then when we notice it in those moments, then we start to get a flavor for the mind's actual taste for that seclusion. And then it's much more accessible, even in the middle of our lives, like in any moment. It can, if the mind has that developed that habit of putting things down, it isn't as addicted to keeping the balls in the air, to keeping uh, things moving. This can become a really accessible pleasure for us, or more accessible. The, there's 
complexity, the endurable complexity of being. Something that got clarified for me this weekend, there was a, um, a workshop on relating wisely to others, and some of what I'm sharing is coming from there. And uh, Mark Dunberg, the guy teacher, brought up that phrase, that this is just, to be a human being, to be a being with all these desires, it's the unbearable complexity of being. And that that's just the way it is. And something about that resonated with me. You know, it's not about getting away from that or trying to have a life. It is useful to have a more simple life, I think, relatively speaking. But the mind can create its own complexity. And just having desires and conflicting desires is complicated. So to me what that kind of that what I think what it did for me just in that moment was reorient my refuge away from getting out of here, because there is no out of here. It's just desire after desire. But then it what it made what it clarified was, well, if there is no end to this desire after desire, then it's really skillful to really cultivate that skill of seclusion. Because otherwise I'm never going to get a break. Thinking that there's an end to desire, like just, you know, when I get to this thing, or this weekend, or whatever, however we, we frame things, I just, and then I'll be done. But, no. So, so it's really about reorienting and, and, re- and shifting our understanding around desire. And the happiness of seclusion is really important in that because it's what it's proving is it's okay to be a human being with desires and needs, but it's okay to put those down for a time. Yeah. And then when we have more perspective on our desires, even from just being able to put them down recognizing that, we pick them back up, and um, with that perspective, that balance that comes from getting a break from being pushed around so much, then we can see them more clearly and do that work of distinguishing which desires are leading to, for example, even the desire for seclusion is a desire. So we're recognizing which desires are leading in the direction of more resonant happiness, and which um, are leading in the direction of uh, happiness that isn't that reliable, or even in the direction of suffering. So that clarity, then, around our desires. So I think I'll leave my comments there. I have a few questions that might be interesting for us to reflect on together. Basically, anything around what I've been sharing around desires, what have we been learning and bringing mindfulness and compassion to our desires. So really being intimate with that way of seeing ourselves as just a bundle of desires. What do we do with that? How do we relate to those desires? And then around the different kinds of desires, like when we notice with mindfulness and compassion a beautiful desire, maybe It would be great to hear some stories of how acting on skillful desires leads to happiness for ourselves and others. And then, on the other side, when we can witness with compassion or be aware with wisdom of unskillful desires, and times when we've really held back, restrained, and we're so grateful that we're learning that that art of restraint, when wisdom recognizes this would be, this wouldn't be helpful. And that happens. And then maybe areas where there's mixed desires, mixed intentions, or it's confusing. And anything we've been learning there. Or any other questions. So we'll use the mic, and if people want to say their names, that's great. So who has the name? 
And then there's other desires. You know, like, I need a break, right? That's a desire. And so what happens when those desires seem to conflict? And just to be interested in that might be another desire. Like, we can have the desire um, to be a certain kind of person. That might be a desire. Or we just have the desire to, to help. It's just, it's just that desire for compassion. And then we have the desire for compassion for ourselves. So these are all natural desires that are arising. And the mind is making decisions. And what's guiding those decisions? There might be views in the mind. But just to, to really look at it in terms of different desires arising, like it's all desires and the mind is making its choices and having certain results. And all of that is feeding back when we're mindful. All that data is being gathered and being fed back into the desire-making machine. So our job is just to be really honest and really mindful about gathering that data. So when we do follow the desire um, to be selfish or, you know, to be self, to do self care, to come to common ground, to meditate. Then we don't even need to have a story or a fixed idea like, oh, I'm doing this because then I'll be a better person and I can help people better. We can just, we might have that story and that's fine. We can be aware of that. But just by bringing mindfulness to the results of being here, that'll be the data that will be fed back in. And same when we don't, when we decide, oh, no. I should really stay at home and do this work. Then we, we notice what the effect of that is. You know, what's the effect of that is in the heart? Does the heart feel open and generous? Does the heart feel resentful and overburdened? So we're just, we can bring this practice of mindfulness into the, I mean, it really should come into all aspects of our life, life including the decisions that we make. Because otherwise we're just acting out of our out of our habits and our fixed views about things and our ideas that you know maybe it go somewhat unquestioned about ourselves. So when we don't need to we don't need to, we can, but we don't need to contrast some ideas with others. We can just if we have some confidence that mindfulness is a useful thing, or at least not harmful, that showing up completely present, intimate, non-judgmental, being with my experience, that that doesn't seem harmful, then we just do that, and we allow the data, when we, when we do that in the different places in our life, we just allow that to have its effect. And then we don't, then we'll see for ourselves what the result is. You know, we don't have to have a story or, you know, prove to someone else, you know, or, or our colleagues who maybe we're all have similar mindsets about working hard. We don't have, we might have a story for them. We might need to have a story for them. But we don't need to convince ourselves. We can just experiment and, and trust that, um, what we're really following is you could say goodness and and the heart that really longs for you know its deepest longings and that maybe maybe when we have um, these concepts that divide it this is good for me this is good for other people we just allow that that way of looking at the world we bring mindfulness to that too. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> okay. Anyone else? Okay. Maybe we can just contemplate our experience for a few minutes sitting.
unforeseen desire as nature and notice the effect of that and we can bring to mind a skillful desire the desire that any goodness any understanding moments of clarity or mindfulness that we've cultivated together, that they not be just for ourselves, because even with some reflection, we see that this heart comes into contact with other hearts, constantly being influenced and influencing So we can have that skillful desire to practice showing up in our lives with mindfulness and compassion for the benefit of all beings, even if we can't imagine how that plays out. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.